You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Hi everyone, Sophia Bush here. Welcome to Work in Progress, where I talk to people who inspire me about how they got to where they are and where they think they're still going. Today's guest, Cora Newman, is running for US Senate to represent her home state of Montana. Her career is incredible. She's worked with the Obamas, the Bushes, the Clintons, the Carters, and more than 40 first ladies and presidents around the world. She's worked with conservation leaders on major advocacy projects and is focusing her campaign on healthcare, public lands, and climate change. I think you guys are going to be so inspired by this conversation. Enjoy. I'm just really glad that you're here. It's been such a great week, and uh, just for people listening at home, this week, Cora is here in California. Uh, last night, we got to go with a bunch of incredible women and support Gloria Steinem at her new book release, and you and Gloria got to have a great conversation about uh, how women like us can activate for Indigenous women, which was very cool. And then tonight, we're doing a big, a big fundraiser for your campaign, and it's like it's happening. Look at us. We're adulting. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I'm so excited. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. It's so cool. I think in particular, obviously we'll talk about nature and your home state and all these things, but I think in particular, it's really cool for people to be able to hear from the voices of people who are running for office all across the country and not just in our own home states. You know, I don't live in Montana yet. <laughs> um, someday, that's my plan. But I think that there's so much happening on the local level, and we can get distracted by, you know, the big political show. But it's our local elected officials who really represent us in Washington. And it's cool for me to have spoken to you a bit about how working at the State Department, you really got to see being in D.C. how corporate interests were so much more represented 
in Montana and in other states than the voices of the actual constituents who live there and who have to experience daily life in any of these places. And I think for us to kind of flip that, for us to take uh, those conversations out of those small rooms in Washington and bring them into spaces like this with constituents and people running for office just feels really cool. So I want the audience to get to know you the way I know you. And I'm wondering if you can just sort of tell us where all this began. So I grew up in Bozeman, Montana. I was raised by a single mom. My dad actually died in a lumber mill accident when I was Mm -hmm. a baby. And if we had been closer to good care, he may have survived. So I've, you know, one of my first experiences on the planet was poor access to healthcare in rural areas. So that was mm-hmm. that was really how my life began. Um, and my mom raised us as she was a widow and raised us in Bozeman, which was a wonderful small town where, you know, one of the things about Montana that that I hope to bring to Washington is how much people take care of each other there. Mm-hmm. So she raised us on her own for six years until she met my stepfather, who's a union carpenter. Uh, and they just raised me with the you know, ideals of hard work, taking care of one another. The other thing that, that most Montanans experience is a sense of almost being raised by nature, right? Mm-hmm. We are really, really connected to the land and water there. Um, and so that was, that was another thing that was really formative for me and, and something that's shaped the work that I've done throughout the world mm-hmm. is that you know, commitment to taking care of the place we live in not just our neighbors, but also the land. And so, yeah, those formative years took me off to go out into the world and study public health and work with rural and native communities on access to healthcare and other issues. Yeah. What do you think, what are the experiences of a child who grows up the way that you did, you know, being partially raised by nature, as you say, what are some of your memories about being on that land as a kid? Some of my earliest memories are just of, you know, I mean, most Montana kids have the have this experience where your kid, your parents just say, you know, go out and play. We'll see you at dark. Mm-hmm. And I just remember riding horses through the landscape and just having this this real sense of open space and that the land was open for all of us to use. Mm-hmm. We have incredible public lands in Montana, but there's also a sense of open access to land, even private land, where there's the opportunity to just really, really ride and play across the entire valleys and have access to those open spaces. Again, something that I'm really focused on protecting as senator of Montana would be focused on making sure that we continue to have access, public access to public lands. Um, So really it was a lot of it was about freedom, freedom to roam (laughs) across the land. And also our rivers and lakes and waterways are also a place that we spent a lot of time playing. I had that too. I I, I grew up here in in Los Angeles, but we used to spend so much of our time in the summer in this really tiny, like 5,000-person ranch town in Central California. My parents fell in love with it when they were um, – when we were really a young family and there was this cool little seaside motel that we would go up and stay in on the weekends. And as we all got older and, um, you know, my dad's career, like, cemented a little more, we would – start going and staying for longer. And then eventually we weren't in the little motel anymore. We were like renting a house in town and um, we'd spend summers up there. And yeah, I would just ride on these ranches and activities were like catching frogs in the creek on a Friday night or, mm-hmm. or you know, trying to see who could gather as many garden snakes as possible. <laughs> and, yeah, And there's something that that's really sort of the most nostalgic time in my childhood is just being out in nature 
I think it really gives you such a healthy perspective of our role and our relationship to the planet. Yeah. 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 We used to do, I remember trying to fashion my own fishing pole. I mean, we did, we did do, I would fly fish with my grandfather, but Mm. then on the afternoon, sometimes we had a little creek running through our backyard and I would go out and try to make my own little fishing pole (laughs) and catch fish. Um, And just, you know, the other thing that, that we, that was really special growing up in a place like Montana was access to wildlife or the ability to just spend time sitting and waiting to see elk, moose, Mm different birds and just just to watch and that that sort of connection to and also awareness about wildlife right mm-hmm. so watching for bears as you hiked and just knowing that they were there cohabitating with you which is something that's really special about the American West is the wildlife that we yeah. have that we need to continue to protect yes so much cuz wildlife is they allow us to live you know our all of our relationship all of our participation on the planet actually makes the planet work there's this incredible podcast I'll find for you. Um, a sound scientist goes around and records all of these naturescapes. And I believe it was in Yellowstone when they started pulling the wolves out of the ecosystem. The ecology started dying off. And when they reintroduced wolves into the, into the parks, everything came back. The deer came back and the trees came back and the birds came back and the bees came back. And you get to listen to the difference uh, and hear a dying ecosystem versus a really healthy functioning ecosystem. Mm. And you really realize that to your point, all of these birds, all of these mammals, bears and bison and owls and eagles, they, they all really serve a purpose. And when we, I think when we lose our touch points to nature, And we forget that we're just a part of it, that we don't own it. We can really do some scary things to the planet. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, that actually gets to the heart of of growing up in a place like Montana is that you feel you're cohabitating. Mm -hmm. That's so cool. You're you're there together. So when you talk about your childhood there and losing your dad so young, I'm curious, looking back, were you the same kind of person that sits across from me today today? Who who was Cora when she was little? What did you what did you learn maybe from your mom growing up, you know, with her being that that matriarch in the family, yeah. Mm-hmm. I had a really acute sense of I don't know if compassion is the word, but I think that when you experience loss at an early age like that, mm-hmm. you are very tuned into the things you can't see. Mm-hmm. Right? So you don't know what someone's been what's what someone's gone through. We often don't speak about these things in our culture, right? That's one of the challenges we have here in this country is that we don't really, we often don't speak about the things that are hardest. And so I had a really fierce sense of almost like justice, I think, as a child. I remember I was about eight years old on the playground, um, and I remember stopping a group of kids that were making fun of someone else. And the person was out of earshot, but they were talking, they were gossiping about another kid. And I remember just interrupting them and saying, you know, that person may not be able to hear what you're saying about them, but they can they can feel it, right? Mm. There's just this sense of you can't know what somebody's been through, and so I think I was I think that that was something that that came to me through that early loss and hardship is that you have to just know and believe that people are doing the best they can for the most part, and then I think being raised by my mom and being raised by a single mom at that age taught me resilience. We rebuilt our family and life in our community in Bozeman uh, and found family where we needed to, right? And so our our extended community became our family and just openness to 
believing or being taught that you know we can we can get through right and that resilience that comes through hardship i think was something that i learned at a really early age watching my mom get up and carry on with her life she would she was working and going to school and but she just she kept a positive attitude and always taught us that we could continue you know to push through and and work hard and and mm-hmm. make a nice life for ourselves so i think there's a lot of resilience that you learn at that age too yeah and resilience is big I feel like you you have to have that in your bones to run for office in particular. <laughs> you know? <laughs> that's a that's a yeah. real that's a real thing. Yeah. So when you talk about building resilience as a child and watching your mom be the head of your household and have a job and be a mother and go to school and, you know, manage to juggle all of these things, I'm I'm curious about who else was in your life in a big way? Like who were, who were your role models? Cause obviously she was one of them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, who were your role models as a kid? Um, my, my grandparents on my father's side actually fled the Holocaust wow. and made it to the U S met the, my grandmother, grandmother, and grandfather met, uh, going to school for social work and they had also been through the unthinkable mm. and then they lost their son. So there was just this, you know, generational loss that I watched my whole family go through and and continue to carry on throughout all of it. Mm-hmm. And so I was really close with my grandparents on both sides. They helped raise us. But hearing those stories and just, you know, one of the things that my grandparents taught me also starting from a really young age is that never to never treat anyone like a victim how disempowering that is, that no matter how hard someone's life has been or what they've been through, that you always meet them at their strengths, right? Mm. So they came here as refugees with, you know, dollars in their pocket and managed to, because they were treated with dignity, they managed to stand up and build a life for themselves and rebuild their lives. And so that was something they taught me at a very young age as well, is that you always meet people at their strengths and look look at them um, in their power as opposed to them looking at a person. And, and pity is the worst thing yeah. that you can actually have for someone. So I learned a lot just listening to their stories. Uh, I think there's something really healthy for children to hear stories of hardship. I think that there's, there's actually some really great studies on resilience among children mm-hmm. and that telling them stories about their family of hardships that their family have, you know, individuals or, or their, you know, l- larger groups in their family have been through, um, that they were able to make it through mm-hmm. actually is, is one of the best ways to teach kids resilience. So I had a lot of that. That's so cool. I think there's often this tendency to want to hide hard things from children, but it's such a disservice. Because kids are aware of what's going on around them. Absolutely. And if we don't communicate with them clearly about those things, hardship becomes shameful because hardship is hidden. That's exactly right. And then what happens when you grow up and you're afraid to fail or afraid to make a mistake? You have to unlearn those things. That's right. You know? That's absolutely. Well, and that brings me actually fast forwards me to right now. Um, one of the things I think kids in our society right now, teenagers are facing is that experience of many of the adults and leaders around them denying what's happening, mm. right? And so you see, we see kids on the street, right? March for Our Lives and the, uh, Extinction Rebellion. Like there are young mm. people out across the country taking to the streets to to speak the truth about what's happening yes. to our planet and to our country. And if they see when they witness adults turning away from it, denying mm. it, actually actively doing things to make things worse. Um, I think that that's, that that creates 
even more fear. Mm-hmm. What they need to see is adults standing up and 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 taking a stand for their future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't imagine how disjointed it must seem to them that they're just looking at the writing on the wall and saying, this is real, this is a problem, let's fix it. And then to have quote unquote leaders on TV saying things like, the truth isn't true. Yeah. Don't believe what you see, just listen to me. You know, things like that. I mean, it's it's authoritarian, it's scary. It feels like that sort of energy has us on a collision course with disaster. And kids are saying, we don't want that for ourselves. We don't want that for our lives. You know, 16-year-old kids are looking at elected officials in Washington and saying, well, when you guys are all dead, we're still going to be here. Yeah. And we don't want to have to clean up your mess. That's right. Any more than we already do. That's right. Well, I have, my kids are 13 and almost 15. Mm. And the things I hear them talking about amongst themselves at the kitchen table with their friends, they're really nervous about the future. And it's one of the Mm. reasons I'm running, listening to them talk about their fears about the future. And I, one of the things I realized, I had just had this moment listen, overhearing them talk about climate and some of the issues that they're nervous about in the future, where I thought, if every adult was standing up right now and taking to the streets or taking whatever responsibility they have mm-hmm. fully and fully engaging and making sure that we have a, a future that they can thrive in, they wouldn't be as nervous, mm-hmm. Right. Because if they saw us fighting for them, they might be they might be worried about what's coming, but they wouldn't feel fear. I think teenagers are feeling fear right now, teenagers and young people. Um, and if they see the adults around them fighting for their future, they would they would feel, I think, much better. Mm. And like they're like like the world was a safe place. Well, they'd feel like somebody had their back. When you were a teenager, did you know what you wanted to be? As a young person and as a teenager, I thought about being becoming a doctor because I wanted to help others. Mm. And then when I was in, actually, when I was in high school, I did an exchange year to Germany. And I went overseas and I lived as an exchange student for a year in Germany because I wanted to see what that country was like. I'd grown up with these stories about, you know, my family had fled Mm. and I wanted to see what this country really was like. And so I went and lived overseas as a teenager and got really, really interested in international issues. And so I, I wanted to focus on something that would be someone who helped people, right? And was in service. So I thought about becoming a doctor and then after going overseas and living, you know, experiencing being immersed in another culture, I, was, I became really interested in international issues. Mm. But I o- was always driven to be of service in some way. That's so cool. Do you think that when you thought about service as a kid, you mentioned that your stepdad was a union worker. Did you learn about unions from him and your mom? Did you see how that led to organizing as a teenager? You know, did, did that stuff enter your kind of mental wheelhouse when you were living under their roof or did yes. you come back to it later? No, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think that access to good to good jobs and secure employment is absolutely critical mm-hmm. to families across the US. And I wouldn't be here without unions. I actually worked as a union laborer to pay for college. What'd you do? Pouring concrete. Hey girl. <laughs> yeah. Just, you know, construction, yeah. labor. And uh, it was incredibly great opportunity for me to, to, you know, not only build those skills, but pay for college. And it was union jobs and good wages are, are really critical for families across. I mean, it's something that we have historically, the labor movement started in Montana, in Butte, Montana, in the mines. 
Really? Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. What's that story? And Montana has a, has a really strong history of labor organizing. Um, in the, the mines in Butte, the community there organized around protecting labor wages and labor and rights. And it's, it, Montana continues to have, have a strong movement among labor and, and organizing. Mm-hmm. Montana is actually the only state to have taken the U.S. government to the Supreme Court over Citizens United to keep private interest out of politics and to ensure that people can continue to organize and, and protect worker rights. Good for you guys. Yeah. We, as a country, we need to do that. What an awful group. This idea that corporate money matters more than American citizens is just astonishing to yeah. me. Yeah. Well, one of the first things I've done as a candidate is take the no corporate PAC pledge. Good for you. Which, which was recognized by End Citizens United because we, you know, one of the, like as you mentioned at the beginning, one of the things I saw working at the State Department was the undue influence of companies uh, on mm-hmm. our government. And I think mm-hmm. that if we have a class of candidates that are f- taking that pledge and are committed to no special interest money, that we'll be able to change that. Actually, yeah. we'll be able to change that and, and push through legislation that ends those special interests. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. I was just talking about this with my dad last night. My dad um, was born in Canada and moved here just after, well, he moved here to go to college. And uh, he was just talking about what it's been like to observe for him, having lived here since the 70s, this change in the way that America functions since we've allowed for corporate lobbying. And for him... You know, he came here as a student and then got a green card. And then when I was, I think I was 11 or 12 when my dad took his citizenship test. And I I helped him study. We made flashcards and, you know, did the whole thing. And it's, it's such a point of pride, you know, to have a parent who is an immigrant and who wanted to be an American. And I remember what that meant for him. And it's it's wild just to hear him talk about what a crushing thing it is as this like proud citizen to watch corporations take the reins in our country. It's yeah. really, it's really surreal because America was, even though I think we've fallen short of our ideals in many ways for many generations, the idea was that this is a place where everyone could come and be an equal and work hard and achieve something, and we would build great things as a community in every state. You know, we would we would create industry, and we would create neighborhoods, and um, and there's obviously been a a lot of darkness in the working out of that idea. But the idea is a really good one. Yeah, and it's scary that for all of us who really are so committed to seeing those actual ideals actually realized that there's this whole other kind of powerful influence that doesn't actually have anything to do with us. That's right. And that's, I mean, one of the things that I've learned in working. So when I was in college, I started this organization working with first ladies around the world. I had been working with rural and native communities around the world and witnessing like we had in growing up poor access to, to healthcare mm-hmm. in many of our rural areas in Montana mm-hmm. um, and across the West and had you know witnessed this huge amount of need on the ground among rural and native communities and was doing all I, I could to help support continued access to and increased access to care and high quality care. And then I learned about this group of first ladies that were looking for partnerships mm-hmm. 
And I just had this, I'd never thought about first ladies before, but I just had this kind of light bulb moment where I thought, here you have all of these, you have this po- these populations that need more resources and access to, to care and services. And then you have these women that are in a position of significant influence and are, are looking to do more with it. And so I started this organization working with first ladies to help them build strong platforms and become as effective as possible and work on push through policy and programming that would bring more care and services to these communities. Mm -hmm. And over the last 10 years, I've worked with 45 first ladies and presidents, worked closely with the Bushes and the Clintons and the Obamas and the Carters and first ladies around the world. And one of the things that I've witnessed over the course of 10 years working with so many leaders is that leaders are drawn to these positions for different reasons. And I've learned to really be able to discern the difference between a true public servant and someone who is engaged in this work or is drawn to leadership for personal gain. Mm. And one of the things that I see happening disproportionately, unfortunately, in this country is too many leaders that are drawn to leadership for personal gain. Mm -hmm. Our current senator that I'm challenging, Senator Steve Daines, it appears through all of the legislation that he has voted on and introduced that personal gain is something that is motivating him. Mm. And it's something that unfortunately in this country we have because we have such strong influence of corporations among our our elected leaders. That is a way that leaders here can go, right, is working on behalf of corporate special interest. Mm. Uh, And unless we create limits and create change, people will continue to get drawn to leadership for those reasons, for the wrong reasons, for personal gain, as opposed to true public service. Mm-hmm. I mean, you see it, look at the Senate Majority Leader. Yeah. It was published a couple of months ago, and we'll we'll fact check it after this, but the numbers were so staggering to me that Mitch McConnell has managed to take a, a low six-figure-a-year salary and turn it into a personal fortune of over $26 million. Yes. Because he's being paid off by people and and thus abandoning the the American people. That's right. And that's that's a scary thing for yeah. me. I'm and my question for those, I mean, my question in that regard is mm-hmm. exactly what you said before. Like, who are your constituents? Mm-hmm. What do they need? Yeah, is your your constituents are your constituents corporations, right? Or mm-hmm. or your actual constituents that you're mm-hmm. serving? And mm-hmm. I think that that becomes a question um, when you're taking special interest money. Absolutely. When you talk, you know, specifically about your opponent in Montana, what are some of the things that he's voted on or suggested for your state that are dangerous for your state? Quite a few things. He's voted to repeal the ACA, which is the Affordable Care Act. And Montana is a state that accepted Medicaid expansion. And as soon as we did, 10% of our population accessed health care. Wow. Huge. Like an additional 10% to those who had it before. Huge. Wow. People who didn't have coverage. 10% of the population had had coverage, was able to access care through Medicaid expansion. This, you know, it's a, it's a state of a million people. Yeah. That's a large percentage in any state, but it was, it was a major benefit to the state. So to vote to repeal the ACA mm. and strip health care from one in 10 Montanans, it's just really out of touch. I, you know, when I look at, at the voting record, I just, I just have to wonder... Again, who 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 were his constituents? Who's he representing? And especially when you think about this idea that one in ten people who live in Montana didn't have health care and have it now, it's shocking to me understanding how deeply manual 
your state is. So many people in Montana are out working the land, living off the land. And and this idea that people who do such hard physical work shouldn't be able to take care of their physical bodies because an elected official doesn't like the other elected official who passed beneficial health care access, that's cruel to me I as agree. an observer. I agree. And and that's what I think Montana has a really, like I was talking about the strong history of our labor and organizing and mm-hmm. It's not a hyperpartisan state. Yeah. It's actually a very purple state hmm. with strong democratic, you know, history of, of electing statewide and local democratic officials. And one of the things that I think is most frustrating and the thing that I'm hearing from people as I travel around the state and talk to them about their concerns is the infighting in yeah. Washington. That there there is a sense that those in Washington don't care about their constituents as much as they care about being right mm-hmm. or fighting back against their, you know, the other side. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the primary concern is not what's best for the American people, mm-hmm. but it's just this ongoing infighting and incompetence and actually also destructive legislation that's getting passed. It's mm-hmm. actually really harming the American people. So mm-hmm. it's something that Montanans know that they have to, especially it's a really remote mm-hmm. state. I remember growing up there and just feeling like we're kind of on our own. Yeah. <laughs> we're really far out there. Um, really dispersed across really remote areas, and you have to take care of each other. Yeah, and and so there is a sense there that the thing that should be that our that our elected leader should be doing is working together the way we do in Montana mm-hmm. to help our neighbors to get through, and that is that is something we're not seeing reflected in Washington that we need to see change, and that people are really eager to see change. Yeah, well, and it's so ironic to me that you know you mentioned that Montana is a really purple state, and I think most people are pretty purple yeah. <laughs> in their beliefs. And it's crazy to me that we do have this infighting in our political arena because it's, you know, the Democrats versus the Republicans and and the Republicans want to repeal the ACA because a Democrat passed it, even though the ACA benefits Americans. There is no red and purple, you know, red and blue team. We're on Team America. That's right. And we've lost it. Yep. And I, and I just think it's so... Again, it's so strange, you know, when you see, you know, when we're we're recording this, we're in the midst of these hearings in Washington. And and for me, as a citizen, to watch, especially in the last week, some members of the GOP so flagrantly try to lie to cover up high crimes and misdemeanors because they think it's beneficial to their team. I'm like, did you forget what? what team you really are supposed to be playing on. You know, it's a weird, it's just a, it's, it's jarring. It's not, really. does not feel American. No. And, and I guess that, that sort of larger perspective, which I hope we can get back to of looking at how we benefit every single person in this country. Similarly to the way that, you know, you talk about Montanans fighting for each other. I'm curious about your course of study, because when you talk about the First Ladies Alliance and when you talk about having worked for presidents like Carter and Bush and Clinton and Obama, that's that's a big legacy and you've done so much incredible work. And, and I know that I'm I'm privy to some of the information about how you got there, but I imagine for listeners who want to be public servants, they're like, okay, but how did that happen? So I, I want to rewind a little bit and and ask you about school, you know, um, 
you mentioned that you were pouring concrete to pay your way through college. But where were you in college and what were you studying and, and how did this all happen? Well, like I said, I was really interested in in being of service of some kind, mm-hmm. um, really interested in international issues after living overseas as a teenager. And I, I went on, I, I decided to study pu- political science. Mm-hmm. So I did my undergrad in political science at the University of New Mexico. And then I went on to do my master's at uh, Columbia in public health, focused on refugee and rural healthcare issues. Mm-hmm working with native focusing on native and rural communities around the world and then went on to do to do my PhD at Oxford it's called a DPhil at Oxford oh, cool. <laughs> and found a professor there that was working with native and indigenous and rural communities around the world focusing on access to primary health care mm. and what I learned studying and working like as I, as I mentioned before studying and working around the world I worked in in Burma and India and then over time my work took me into working in areas across Africa but what I witnessed on the ground was, again, this really strong sense of community and doing doing every whatever it took to come together at the community level to help each other on the health on the healthcare front. You know, we were looking at health and how how strongly knit these communities were when it came to pulling together to to help any family in need. Something that I had seen growing up in Montana as well, mm-hmm. but and, and knew that in these countries there were more resources available for these communities, but they weren't reaching them. Mm. And that with some with legislation and and will from the top to create to bring more services to these communities, we could we could do so much more for for rural and native communities around the world. And so, I was in the midst of that when I when I I just heard about a group of first ladies in Africa. They were looking for partnerships, mm. and like I said, I had never. I hadn't thought about first ladies. I, I wasn't even specifically focused on working with women, but I was I was a student at the time, and I just had this moment where I thought. No one is organizing this group. And if if they are willing and interested in doing more with that platform, somebody somebody needs to to step up and do it. And so I had no experience or a prior prior experience working with first ladies. And I just got that it was like I got this idea in my head mm-hmm. that that these that these leaders needed to be um that the power at the top needed to be harnessed to do more for communities. And I just started organizing, just started making phone calls. <laughs> And, you know, I developed the concept of, of convening first ladies and putting them on stage and listening to them. And one of the things that we learned, that I learned as I was going through the process was that these women had never been asked to speak on behalf of their countries. They were asked to represent someone else's cause. They were different organizations thought that they would, would present to them what they thought their country needed, but they had never been asked to stand on stage and speak from their perspective about what they knew about their populations. And so it was the first time most of them had ever been asked to actually stand on stage and present to an audience what they felt their countries needed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it was just a really, it was a great success. They came, uh, we had 20 first ladies come, first ladies and, and delegates come from around the world to, to come and speak about what their countries needed. Mm-hmm. And it, it drew the attention of, of Laura Bush and the Obamas and the Clintons over time and the Carters. So it was, it was for me with that initiative, it was, it was looking at an unmet need mm-hmm. and finding leadership to fill in that gap. Mm-hmm. And you've talked about the fact that there's really a double standard because so many first ladies across the world aren't given a budget, they're not given an office, but they are expected to participate in everything that their husbands are doing, 
They have access to the world leaders. They have access to information about how their countries are working. Yet they're expected to sort of just be these perfectly polite public advocates or figureheads. And I think it's really exciting, you know, the the project you launched to actually give these women with access to the top platforms and and the possibility of using them to advocate in real ways. Why do you why do you think that historically they've just been expected to show up and smile? I found that all that the challenges that many women leaders face are sort of crystallized in the role of first lady. Mm. Where first ladies are criticized if they do too much mm-hmm. and they're criticized if they don't do enough. Mm. So we saw right here in our own country that first ladies were in a position where they couldn't really get it right. And there was this double standard on them that I that I saw reflected among women across the board. And we had Secretary Clinton, well, First Lady Clinton <laughs> at the time, working hard to push through healthcare and being criticized for that. Mm-hmm. And then we had First Ladies that were criticized for not doing enough when they may have been actually really doing a lot behind the scenes. Right. And I think it, one of the things that really brought it home for me was the fact that when you have a First Lady, everyone wants to, knew, well, everyone wants to know what they're doing, right, for their country. What is their platform? Um, are they doing enough? And when you have a, a man, Spouse, nobody even knows what they're doing, and they're not necessarily (laughs) expected to do anything. So there are these really high expectations without resources, even though these women are in a position where they can have a huge amount of influence. And I was really impressed with Michelle Obama Hmm. and her work, too. She really took her time to decide what she wanted to focus on. And, and, you know, spent time investigating what the potential of the First Lady's office was, listening to families around the country um, and understanding what they needed before she – and then she got organized and launched multiple initiatives. But she really, she really took her time to understand what this position could do and what she could do as First Lady. Um, I was also really impressed with Laura Bush. Mm-hmm. Um, many people don't realize that – and this is what I learned after the fact, but many people don't realize that she was really instrumental in pushing through the President's Malaria Initiative. Mm. And the PEPFAR, the President's Initiative on HIV-AIDS around Mm. the world, uh, that she was really instrumental in convening policymakers uh, and private sector partners to make sure that those massive international programs got off the ground. And isn't that exciting? That's one of the things I, I interviewed the Clintons a few months back. And one of the things that President Clinton spoke so fondly of was his time working with President Bush on PEPFAR and how they partnered across their administrations to really make sure that they could make an impact on HIV and AIDS around the world. That's right. And that he he was, when I said, isn't that great that, you know, two presidents from opposing parties, and he said, who would oppose that? That's right. You know, it, it didn't even make any sense to him that, that they wouldn't have worked together on it. And again, it's that kind of energy that we need to see again. We need to see again. Yeah. And yeah. that was one of the things that I, you know, I'm a, I'm a Democrat um, and I have been my whole life, but working closely with the Bushes, I learned I learned so much. And mm-hmm. it was it was easy for me to set aside any differences that we may have had at the fringes because we were focused on doing as much as we could for women and families. And mm-hmm. we, like you said, most people are purple. Mm-hmm. We actually really do agree on most things. And I feel that when I travel around Montana and talk to voters and, you know, people ask, are you Democrat and Republican? And I say, I'm a Democrat, but I'm, I'm, I'm Montanan. Mm-hmm. And I have a very, you know, I'm independently minded and I will do, I am focused on doing what's right for our population, for our communities, yep. for our families. And most of us agree. We yep. agree on most things. We really do. And that was one of the best 
parts of that experience working working with the Bushes was learning. There's a lot more we can we that we do agree on and that we can get mm-hmm. done together uh, if we focus on what we agree on. Yeah, one of the best pieces of advice I ever got was from a a producer on a show that I worked on for nine years, and he was our. There's a thing in my industry which is your uh, your supervising producer on a set, so they're the person who's around for every single episode. They work with every single director, and then they they direct a lot as well. And on on an episode where I was shadowing him because I was preparing to direct, I, I said, you know, how do you think you run a set to feel this way? Because he had a really great energy there. And he said to me, um, he said, because my policy is the best idea always wins. Mm. He said, and if that's my idea or the, you know, UPM's idea or your idea or the Dolly Grip's idea, I don't care. But the best idea always wins. And I wish we could bring a little more of that back because – one of the reasons I think I love Montana so much, when I think about even that wedding that we were at, you know, there was a point when we all ran under the tents for the rainstorm where a group of us were talking and there's myself who is, you know, this entertainer and this political person. There's you who has this incredible political history uh, and is a native Montana. And there's uh, a, another friend of ours who is an incredible wellness practitioner. Then we've got two ranchers. We've got a, a National Geographic photographer who's a passionate conservationist. And I was like, look at this. This is th- These are the voices that in in each of the sort of archetypes we represented really matter when you talk about community. You know, ranchers, preservationists, conservatives, progressives, creatives, and and there we were talking together and feeling like a family. And that's and holding the tent up so that it wouldn't collapse in the wind. Collapse under the weight of the water. Um, you know, but isn't that funny? We we need to tent pole our communities. Yes, really, exactly. Um, and but I th- think that's what's so cool about what you're doing is you're bringing together so many of these interesting people. You know, when I when I see you gather ranchers and indigenous communities to talk about what they need for the land. I'm like, there it is. Yeah. Yeah. And again, we agree on so much. And I think what you're saying before about the best idea winning Mm -hmm. is goes back to what I was saying about being truly a public servant or being there for personal gain, right? Personal gain and ego. And, And one of the things that I did witness in Washington when I was there was that there's a huge, I would say probably the majority of people there are drawn to politics because they care mm-hmm. about make they believe in society, they believe in community, they believe that we can pull together to make sure that the those that are most underserved get what they need. Yeah. And so it, politics also draws very heart-led, selfless people to it. Yes. We just have to bring them back to the surface because they're there. I mean, yeah. working in politics is not an easy life, right? No. And it, and it is system. if you really if you really want to create change, yep. you are working around the clock. And there are a lot of really idealistic people mm. also in Washington who want to create a society that works for everyone. And so bringing them back up to the surface yeah. and and creating an emphasis on public service above mm-hmm. personal gain. And I think rebuilding the system a bit because you could put the best workers in a toxic working environment and they become toxic. That's right. Or they become rife with toxic stress. Yep. And and we need to reshape the system so that, to your point, these incredible public servants and people who get into politics because they have these big, beautiful hearts or they're, they're empaths or they want to better their communities, those are the people who should be 
in charge. Yeah. People who are willing to sit at the table with people who don't think like them. That's right. You know, I spent almost a decade living in the South. I talked to a whole lot of people who, on the surface, folks who don't know me would probably think I wouldn't speak to. You know, like a lot of people out there who look in go, well, you're a progressive and a Democrat, and there's no way you'd entertain a conversation with a Southern conservative Republican. And I'm like, I do it all the time. Yep. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's one of my favorite things to do, actually, is to have conversations with people who don't agree with me. And again, I don't know if that comes from growing up in Montana mm-hmm. and being, you know, interested in who who someone is and their character yeah. as opposed to anything else. But it is, I like, you know, when I travel around the state and talk to people, I say, I always say I love tough questions. Like, let's talk about it. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. I love tough questions. Yeah. That's a good, that's a good one. I really do. I I had my old college professor uh, on the show recently, which was just such a highlight. And we were talking about how important it is for young people in particular to make sure that they're getting a global perspective, mm-hmm. you know, especially in today's political climate with as we've been talking about all this infighting, to to not only be willing to listen to people who might think or look differently than you, but to really look at what position we are taking around the world, how we are impacting the world in, in the sort of ripple effect from the ways that we impact our communities. And when you talk about community, it also makes me think about that larger, you know, next layer. And I guess... I'm curious what you think, given all of your work, you know, domestically and around the world, um, what do you think about how we can leverage our global power to talk about uniting on these issues, you know, whether it's climate or getting money out of politics? Because we're not the only country struggling with that, right? You know, the writing's now on the wall and we know that Brexit was as a movement completely pushed through by these nefarious actors and dark money and and really people in the UK got duped um, and are upset about it. You know, they're taking to the streets about it. So I'm, I'm curious when we when we think about teetering on this edge that it feels like we're on sometimes, what, what do you think about how we how we unite around the globe and not just next door? I mean, the one thing about America historically is the influence we have globally mm-hmm. to shape culture, mm-hmm. to shape commerce, and to shape political trends. And I think that I think we we have had and can bring back our capacity to have a huge influence on climate uh, and on the way that we do, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the way that we invest in renewable energy, new forms of energy looking at minimizing negative practices around single-use plastic and different there there are pretty straightforward solutions to obviously will require systemic change but straightforward solutions to minimizing the impact of the human impact on the climate mm-hmm. and we have we have historically had undue influence on pollution, right? And mm-hmm. and impact globally, climate uh, on the climate globally. So that's a place where I feel like the historic signing of the Paris Agreement is something that we need to return we need to return to. Yes. And I think also, you know, our our legacy of humanitarian aid and development, I think that that's a place where where the United States has led and can continue to lead and and you know, be a role model in development social and economic development around the world. Mm-hmm. I'm curious too, when we talk about humanitarian aid and, and development globally, you know, your, your doctorate 
was in international development. Can you walk us through a little bit of your international work? Because we've talked about it, but again, I want everyone else to to know kind of where you were and what you were doing because I, I think it's fascinating. Yeah. So my during my master's and PhD, I was focused on, I was working mainly with refugees from Burma on the Thai-Burma border. Uh, also spent some time in southern India working with uh, very rural communities in southern India. And the focus of that work was on uh, revitalization of native knowledge and practices for public health. Mm. Because one of the things that we see globally when I talk about our legacy of humanitarian aid and development. One of the things that I think it's really important to be mindful of is, as I said, talking about my grandparents and never treating anyone like a victim, mm-hmm. that we have to make sure that the aid is doesn't create dependency, but that it focuses on investing in mm-hmm. existing strengths in these communities. So when you're working with a group of refugees or you're working in a rural community, they have a set of health practices that they may already have, they have been historically using that are serving their communities, indigenous knowledge, medicine, plant medicine. We see this in communities, native communities across the U.S. as well. How can we invest in their existing knowledge and resources as opposed to bringing in outside knowledge, Western medicine, into a place where they may have already had a system of medicine set up that was working well. Mm -hmm. So how do we invest in empowering local communities to serve their own communities and to, Mm -hmm. and to build resilience and to build sustainable systems so that there isn't a dependency on aid because that's not good for anyone. Well, and to your point to not decimate their culture, to not come in and just wipe out generations of indigenous knowledge, but certainly provide aid in whatever way is helpful to bolster a community, to uplift a community. But yeah, right. what happens if you show up and then 10 years later the aid goes away? Yeah, that it should be complementary. Really com- yeah, it should be complementary. Yeah. It should not replace what's there. Sure, and, it should only be additive. Yeah, and we have that, you know, I, 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 growing up in Montana, I was very curious about what had happened to our Native communities mm. um, and what had happened to their systems of knowledge and education. And it wasn't something that we really learned about. And, and it, so I was always very conscious of, mm. of what was missing there. And was it your time in India that got you interested in Ayurveda? Yeah, in Burma as well. They actually their their medicine is a, is a, is a form of Ayurveda, um, and so I had learned about the very ancient, sophisticated system of medicine. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about it? So Ayurveda is the original indigenous system of medicine in in mm-hmm. Southeast Asia. Uh, sorry, in South Asia, and it is it's. Americans tend to be more familiar with Chinese medicine, mm. but Indian Indian Ayurvedic medicine is, is has five branches of medicine uh, focused on all the systems of the body, and also they also have a, a, an arm that's focused on like psychology and you know mental health, and it's based in plant medicine. There's also you know they also use minerals and and metals and and all you know natural forms of medicine to to treat. They look at the body in an individual way. So everything is individual and relative. Mm. So they treat the individual as opposed to trying to find, uh, in Western medicine, we try to find the active ingredient in each medicine and sort of apply the same medicine to every individual. Mm. And in these Eastern systems of medicine and native systems of medicine, it's focused more on treating the individual body and and customizing the medicine for that individual as opposed to trying to find a one-size-fits-all mm. Which is so amazing because everyone does react differently to different things. Yeah. I I was fortunate enough. I was really struggling with my asthma um, in my mid-20s, like really having a hard time getting it under control. And I was introduced to an unbelievable 
Ayurvedic doctor who uh, moved here to Los Angeles. I think she's been here 15 or 20 years now. Um, just an incredible practitioner. And she took me through a whole Ayurvedic, essentially like a cleanse for a week and put me on herbs and 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 quite literally changed my lung health. I mean, really fascinating. And so many of the pharmaceutical drugs that doctors wanted me on, I got off of completely thanks to her. That's incredible. And it's really amazing what what our bodies can do when when treated properly yeah. rather than to your point having something you know some band-aid slapped over it and saying eh, it works for most people let's see if it works for you yeah yeah and i think it's important to be open to like i always say to people you know it, but the best thing you can do is find the system that works for you mm-hmm. and we should have all of those available to us yeah. right and western medicine is incredible for certain things of course i mean i i i, I don't think what yep. you're saying is don't give indigenous communities the aid they need in antibiotics or access to healthcare that's not what you're saying right. you're saying let's offer them aid but not eradicate their practices, which by the way, are really good for all of us. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And there's so much knowledge there to be gained, especially as we, like in the US, there are so many more, there are so many, there's an upswing in chronic diseases and different diseases that people are facing. Mm -hmm. And we should have access to every every type of care Mm -hmm. that's available that may work. And so many people with chronic diseases and illnesses are healing themselves through dietary changes through plant medicines, through um, regimens of herbs and cha- just changing the way that they live. Yeah. You know, it was interesting. We, we we had Zach Bush come on the podcast and, you know, he's got three subspecialties and 17 years of medical school and he's an incredible doctor. And all of that medical study led him farther and farther away from pharmaceuticals and and actually his passion is regenerative agriculture because he said, if we change the food system, we change human health. If we, uh, he was explaining to me that if we made, I believe he said either five or 10% in the initial sort of wave of change of farms in the United States uh, regenerative, we would actually completely change uh, the climate disaster course that we're on. That's right. And And we could quite literally change the planet if we just move toward regenerative agriculture. We could we could increase crop yields for farmers. We could cut their costs of operating their farms by 80%, which would mean yeah. that they'd have 80% more profit uh, as individuals in in the economy. And so I'm just fascinated by this idea that there are so many sectors of knowledge where we could just live more harmoniously with the planet and with our bodies and not only is there an upside on the wellness end, but there's an upside on the financial end for all of us too. That's right. And the climate. Yeah. Yeah. Of and we have, yeah. And there is a there is a there is a movement across Montana of of more investment in and and education about regenerative agriculture. So well, I got a yeah. guy for you. Yeah. <laughs> um, when you talk about that that the sort of movements in Montana, you know conservation efforts and bringing together these different communities. For example, as we touched on earlier, bringing together ranchers and indigenous communities. How do you do that? How do you convene people? What are what are the big challenges about getting all those folks together and, and how are you tackling them? So, uh, so yeah, 
Thank you for asking. <laughs> One of the things that, you know, what I've over the last four years have been working on this project um, with Patagonia and some other conservation groups around bringing what we've been calling local land custodians or those that are most connected to the land together to talk about their shared goal of protecting access to public lands, public lands, and and the relationship that we have with them because we have yeah, ranchers that are grazing on public lands um, and BLM lands. We have native communities that have historically been left out of the conversation around conservation and land management. And so making sure that there's an opportunity for them to be engaged more centrally in that conversation. And most most of these communities, and Mon- Montana has a history of really strong collaboration across the spectrum of sort of background background and political beliefs on land protection and public lands. It's one mm. of the states that really stands out across the West when it comes to collaborating around protecting public lands, mm. putting politics aside to protect public lands. This The interests are the same among most of the groups, which is to keep our public lands intact, uh, to protect our waterways, uh, and make sure that our waters you know, we're leaving clean clean water for our future generations uh, and and there are really um, healthy grazing practices that mm-hmm. are that are practiced across Montana on some of our our open lands and public lands and so one of the first efforts that we engaged in actually uh, a few months after Trump took office, he took aim at our public lands across the country uh, and one of the first things that he did was slash Bears Ears National Monument by 85% Awful. and and start to to propose opening it up to extractive industries. And that effort, that Bears Ears effort was, was five years of in-depth negotiation and collaboration between the federal government, farmers, hunting, hunt, the hunter and angler community, outdoors community, and, mm-hmm. and native communities uh, to come up with a really historic movement to protect that land. And it was mm-hmm. one of the first times that the federal government has collaborated really closely on public land management with the tribes. Wow. And so it was something that had, it was a model for the future of land management in America. And within a few months, he had slashed it. And and it was, you know, in some ways, a really good rallying cry for these groups mm-hmm. to come together uh, and and talk about what their shared ideals as opposed to anything that they disagreed on. Yeah. And what are we seeing now? Because obviously there's there's been an outcry post-Trump slashing protection for Bears Ears. What do we do? How do we how do we demand that the legislation to protect it that was passed before he took office, how do we as a citizenry demand that that legislation be honored? Well, there are multiple lawsuits in play right now. And so that's really something that we're, you know, continue to push through and advocate Mm -hmm. for. Is there a way that we as an audience, uh, you know, all the listeners on this podcast, is there a way that we could lend our voices to that? Are there petitions? Are there calls that we could be making to our elected officials? You know, how, how can we participate in that? Fight. Well, there was a there was a mechanism that uh, we had in place where the public could submit comments mm-hmm. on this, and that has actually been limited as well <laughs> by this administration. And so, you mean I think this administration doesn't want to listen to us. <laughs> Interesting. Um, so, I think that really, actually, at this point in time, we're looking at making sure we get a new set of legislators. Yeah, we got to flip the Senate into the Senate yeah. into the White House that honor. Our history, our our American history of protecting our national treasures and our future public lands, yeah. Because these guys, these guys who are in in bed with the oil companies who want to drill up our land, you know, Mitch McConnell's old. He's not going to be around when our kids are suffering the consequences of this 
horrifically short-sighted and greedy decision. He just wants another payday. That's right. And so for us, it's, I really do believe, you know, that's part of the reason that these elections are so important. It's part of the reason we have to maintain a stronghold in Congress. We have to flip the Senate because we have to get a party that's clearly been bought off by big corporate lobbyists out of the way. They got to go. That's right. They just got to go. That's right. And for you to be running for Senate in Montana and say, I'm not taking any corporate money. I want you in that seat for many reasons, <laughs> but I want you in that seat so that you're not being influenced in the That's way right. that your opponent is. We need someone who's going to stand up and protect American American individuals and families. Yeah. Who's going to represent their constituents. Yeah. And not special interest. And we really we have the we have the potential yeah. to flip the Senate. I love that. Can you can you speak a little bit to us about the reset initiative? Because this is something I didn't know about until you and I became friends. And I think it's really inspiring. And I think it would also be a kind of great rallying cry for so many people who want to lend a hand. Yeah. So Reset was formed. And one of our, really our main initiative over the last few years has been that public lands initiative Mm -hmm. focused on uh, specifically on Bears Ears and convening leaders from various sectors to talk about how we come together to protect our shared inheritance, Mm -hmm. right? Mm-hmm. These lands and waters are our shared inheritance as a country. Um, and so over the last, the, one of our most recent convenings was bringing women, Native women leaders mm-hmm. from across the five tribes of the Bears Ears region together to uh, share their stories and build their skills to become advocates at mm-hmm. the forefront of the fight to protect this land mm-hmm. um, and lands across the West. What we're seeing across the country right now is a rising up of women. Yes. Um, and women standing up to say, you know, we've, we have this history of the strong father mm. force in this mm-hmm. country. And it's, it's obviously incredibly important. But what I think we're seeing now is the rise of the protective mother. Yes. And all life comes from the mother. Yeah. And it was interesting at, at, the, at the Steinem event last night, there was a conversation had around this idea that perhaps the reason we're so dismissive of the planet is because we've always called her Mother Earth. Mm. Because we just expect women and mothers to give and give and give, and we take and take and take, and we expect them to stay because that's what mothers do. But the planet will not do that for us. And we need we need that strong mother, that protective mother to to be in charge for a bit. I loved when I was reading about the initiative that you guys wrote that Native communities have the longest history of championing land protection but have been silenced within the conservation movement and largely left out of federal land management. That's right. And that's why Bears Ears was so incredible and powerful. And because historic. It, because it brought those, you know, brought tribes into direct conversation and collaboration with the federal yeah. government like they hadn't been before. And on the the strong mother front, or the mm-hmm. that uh, one of the things I always like to ask people is, what's the most dangerous animal in the wild? It's mm-hmm. a mother protecting her cubs. Yep, you know, and that that energy of a protective mother is unstoppable. Yeah, and we need it we right do. now. We do. We need it. Yeah, I'm ready for it. Yeah, <laughs> take the Senate. <laughs> um, one fact that I was really inspired to learn, you know, I, I follow a, a slew of incredible activists and, and one of them was sort of teaching followers uh, about Native communities. He is a, a young Native guy who's just a political powerhouse. 
And he was, one of the things that he wrote about that was so jarring to me, because I think data is always really helpful, is that Native communities protect 85% of the wildlife around the world. Yeah. And are given no political power and are often dismissed at these tables. And it's incredibly important for us to put our Native communities in positions of leadership. And it, it makes me excited about the work that you're doing, unifying all your communities in Montana. Um, because again, we're all, we're all actually on the same team here. Yes, we are. And I always say the, the earth is not political. No, no, she's not. Um, so when we think about this, this initiative, well, when we think about this, the initiatives in your campaign and all these things, I'm curious about two things. What do you think is most important to families in Montana right now? Because I have a hunch it'll be what's important to most of us everywhere. And and how can I and how can my listeners help to support you in your run? Thank you. The thing I'm hearing most about as I travel around the state is access to health care. Mm. We have families across Montana that are traveling up to five hours to see a doctor. Oh. My family, like I said, we lost my father because we didn't have access to, to the care that, that we needed when he was in that lumber mill accident. And that's, we're experiencing high rates of suicide in Montana. Mm. Heartbreaking stories about families and people, individuals not having access to health care. So that's something, and I think that that's something that we're seeing reflected across the United States and across rural areas, but it really across the United States is access to high quality, affordable health care. So that's something that that is is a high priority for me. The other is good jobs, good wages. So being raised by a union carpenter, like mm. I said, I have the firsthand knowledge of the importance of good wages for families. And we have the capacity to invest in new industries like renewable energy. Mm. We have a huge amount of wind in Montana and can can harness it to mm. not only is not only protective for the climate, but it also brings good jobs to places like rural areas in Montana. Yes. It's we're seeing, I think, in in Iowa and in Idaho, they're investing significantly in renewable energy and it's bringing good jobs and again, good jobs, energy and climate protective practices yes. to the state. And then the other is is across the board co- conservation, climate change, land use. We have a huge amount of land in Montana, <laughs> but in this country, public lands are actually very climate protective, right? Yes. So if we ensure that we have continue to, to keep those lands protected, um, then they will they will clean the air and water for us. Yes, right. Mm-hmm. And so those are those are the issues that are face that we see are hearing about across Montana uh, as priorities. But the healthcare really is is the top thing that comes forward when I talk to families across Montana is access to health care. I spoke with a, a young man in Miles City in eastern Montana recently who said that he has lost five friends to suicide. Wow. So it really is. And it's a, and mental health, mental health issues are facing young people, people of all ages, but it's, you know, we're seeing epidemic proportions mm-hmm. of anxiety, depression, suicide uh, across this country right now. We also have a high rate of farmer suicide. Mm. And so that's, these are, these are things that are, that are facing rural communities across the country mm-hmm. and that we're hearing about across the state in Montana. Uh, ways for people to get involved is to spread the word mm-hmm. <laughs> about my campaign, support the campaign and the work that we're doing, and really just do what you can 
take time each day or as regularly as you can to have conversations with people that you may not agree with. Yeah. Because we're becoming so, we have become so polarized as a country. Mm. Democrats and Republicans are almost afraid of each other. I mean, it's like, you know, we, yeah. we, don't see the, we, we don't see the kind of collaborative civil dialogue that we used to. Um, it's okay to have differences. So I like to encourage people to go out and find, you know, go out this week and find three people that you would not normally agree with and mm. find a way to have a conversation with them and listen to each other. Mm. I like that. Do you have a message for first-time voters as we go into 2020? Thank you. <laughs> yes, also Your vote yes. matters. Truly. Your vote matters. We have local level elections that are being lost by 12 to 15 votes sometimes. <sighs> wow. Your vote matters. Yeah, we can't let people forget that. Yeah. Something I ask everyone who comes and sits in the seat across from me. The podcast is called Work in Progress. And when you hear that phrase, what comes to mind is a work in progress in your life? I think continuing to be honest about sharing our hardships and things that really, you know, I think that everyone has been through some sort of trauma or challenge or pain. Uh, And I think it's what makes us human. Mm. And I think that continuing to bring that forward, no one has all the answers. To To continue to bring that forward and make sure that that's part of the conversations we have at every level from our kitchen table to the chambers of the of Congress, Mm -hmm. that we need to be able to share uh, openly what our hardships are, what our challenges are, what our fears are. I think we all share on that front. We all share, also share a lot more than what keeps us apart. Mm. Continuing to be open and honest about what's what's difficult, right? And to to not act like we have all the answers. Yeah. Because if we actually talk about what's really going on, that's where we find solutions together. That's right. That's exciting. Ooh, I just can't wait for you to get sworn into the Senate. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for coming today. Thank you for having me. This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush, and Sim Sarna. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnick. Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. Our editor is Josh Windish, and our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Brilliant Anatomy.